Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. All right. Well, we're in this series called Disciple. And I'm, uh, you know, this is, this is a, a great way to kind of kick off the year. You know, when Jesus started his public ministry, he had a very simple invitation. Follow me. Follow me. The implication was, go where I'm going, do the things I'm doing, live the way that I'm living, just follow me. This was his most concise, clear invitation of Jesus Christ. Now, it wasn't an invitation to attend church regularly, although you should. It wasn't an invitation to start tithing more more regularly or generously, although you should. This was an invitation to be a fully devoted follower of his, to be his disciple. This is what's prompted this series is that we're talking about. So what does that mean to be a disciple? Well, the first week we talked about being the branch, staying connected to the vine, that really a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus, stays connected to Jesus has this understanding that in their own strength, in their own ability, they cannot accomplish anything in this world. If they want to bear fruit in their life, if they want to see God moving through their life, they must, they must, they must stay connected to Jesus. And last week, we talked a little bit about the Holy Spirit and how, as a disciple of Christ, we want to catch the wind. We want to lift the sails and catch the wind. We want to be God's instrument in his hands to change this world. And it happens when we are responsive, that's the word that we use, responsive to the Holy Spirit. When we, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and we say, okay, Lord, that's where you want us to go, that's where we're going to go. Like we might have ideas, we might have desires, we might have our own will, but the Holy Spirit says, this is what I want you to do, and that's what we say, that's what, if this is what you want to do, this is what we want to do. That's where we've been. Today I want to take a little bit different direction, though, as we talk about what a disciple does, we're going to look at a great story in Luke chapter 5. I call it a great story. I love the stories in the Gospels. Um, I really, they resonate with me. I, I think, too, I've spent a considerable amount of time studying the Gospels, diving into the Gospels, but that's probably why as well. But I love this story. I call it a great story because of the, 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 the plot and everything that happens in this story. They just... You know, like the elements of a great story would be, for example, like when movie makers take a book and they make it into a movie, you know, they, what they're trying to do is they're trying to capture people. They want people to feel like, man, I wish I was, how many of you ever been to a theater or read a book and you're like, in your mind as you're reading it or as you're watching it, you're like, man, I wish I was there. I wish I was a part of that story over there, right? And so that's what a great story does. A great story invites you in draws you in, but also a great story helps you, you, you start identifying with some of the characters in the story. I can't tell you the number of times I've watched Braveheart, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm William Wallace. <laughs> I'm really not. I'm probably a lot weaker than him and not as strong. I can't wield a sword. I can't ride a horse, but I'm still William Wallace, you know, because I, I identify with this, the character. I want to be a part of that. Maybe for you, it's like, I want to, you know, I like Han Solo in Star Wars, and there's a few of others of you, like you, you like to dance like Napoleon Dynamite or something. I don't know. It, but there, you identify, right? You identify with the character. So a great story is it draws you in and you identify with this character. Well, this is a great story that we're going to read in Luke chapter 5 in just a second here. 
This takes place in the town of Capernaum. This is Peter's hometown. It's right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it's where Peter grew up. Peter grew up fishing there with his brother Andrew. And so they, you know, that's, it's a great town. It's like a little country town, really. It's not, a, it's not a very big town, but it's a fishing town. Okay? Very rural in some ways, but it's a town nonetheless. And then one day, Peter's life gets, Peter and Andrew's life just get turned upside down when this unconventional rabbi shows up and says, hey, come follow me. And I'm going to pause here for a second. just want you to know that that invitation of Jesus is an invitation to every single one of us. Okay, so I hope, you can, I hope you can hear what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to erase all the lines that we sometimes create between what it means to, to, you know, to be in ministry, to follow Jesus, or to be a Christian. Sometimes we have some very rigid lines about that. We think that, hey, I'm a Christian because I just check the boxes. I go to church every Sunday. I, I give it in the offering. And I do. Okay, so I'm a Christian. And that's great. Do those things. But here's the point. A follower of Christ... Jesus says, follow me, and we respond. We go. We follow him. We do what he asks us to do. We live the life that he invites us to live. And that's for every single one of us in this room. Not one of us is exempt from that. We're called to follow Jesus. And so this rabbi shows up and basically calls Peter and Andrew and says, hey, come follow me, and they do, and it just radically changes their life. Now, scholars think that the story that we're going to read here was actually took place in Peter's home. We're not exactly sure if it actually took place in Peter's home, but I want you to imagine the scene here, okay? It's, a, it's somebody's home, and it's this little small country town. A bunch of out-of-towners have shown up to this country town. They've come to, a bunch of religious leaders, they've come to investigate Jesus. They're, they've come not as seekers. They're not people who are saying, hey, you know, Jesus is great. We want to know more about it. That's not them. They're here to, to p- try to figure out if they can discredit him. They're skeptical, really, because what happened is you, they feel obligated because this Jesus just right before this heals this leper. And, it, you know, the news gets out that there's this guy, this rabbi out in Galilee that healed a leper. And see, the Pharisees, they taught that the sign, you know, they were expecting signs of this Messiah. And they taught that the Messiah would do three things. He would heal leprosy or he would heal a leper. He would cast out a demon that was making a man dumb or he couldn't speak. And he would heal somebody who was, who was blind from birth. And we know that Jesus did all three of these. But these Pharisees, they understand this. They know that there's a man who just healed a leper. And could he be the Messiah? Now, they are asking that. But really what they want to do is they want to discredit him. They want to show up and say, yeah, no, look at him. He's, he cannot be the Messiah. No way. I mean, they're having a hard time imagining Jesus as the Messiah. He was so unconventional. He just didn't do things the way they did things. And then on top of that, he has this like ragtag band of disciples that like they weren't very educated. They didn't know a whole lot. And they were following Jesus. And so it just didn't make sense to them. So they've come to investigate. And so the story begins where they're all gathered in this house. And Luke chapter five, verse 17 says, one day Jesus... <clears throat> Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Okay, so they had come, notice we qualified, they had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. So these teachers and these Pharisees had come from all over the area, even Jerusalem. 
So basically, Luke is telling us there's a whole bunch of religious leaders in this house, okay? <clears throat> and, the, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So Jesus is healing sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on, on his mat through the tiles of, in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. So here we have a story. I call it a great story. A story of some men, some friends who want to bring, so desperately bring their friend to Jesus that they do some pretty radical things, okay? Now the Bible tells us in, Matthew, in, in Mark chapter two that it was four friends. If you look in Mark two, you'll see the same stories there. Um, it's four friends. I want you to imagine the scene here. Imagine the scene. This is a crowded house. The religious leaders have made their way into the house. They've got the VIP seats because that's what they do. They walk in and they take the most important seats. And so they're sitting there in front of Jesus. And then there's this crowd behind them. And like there's a whole bunch of people behind them. It's so full that people are standing outside of the house, looking through the window, peeking through the door. I've, you know, we've lived in Bangladesh before. We've seen that, you know, where it's not because Jesus showed up, but because some foreigner like me shows up and we're in this tiny little house and there's everybody's peeking inside the house. And I wish I was like Jesus, healing people like that, but I wasn't. I was just there talking. But there's a whole crowd of people just peeking in. They're looking. It's really crowded. These four friends bring their friend to Jesus because he's paralyzed. Being a paralytic in that day was a death sentence. There were no wheelchairs. There were no government services to help people with handicaps. If you didn't have some friends that could help you like these friends, I mean, you pretty much... You had no hope. And so these four friends, they seemed to be that for this man. They're, they're going to do what they can to help this man. We're not exactly sure what prompted it. We're not sure why they showed up. I suspect that maybe one of the friends heard about Jesus healing this leper and thought to himself, wow, this guy's a miracle worker. Maybe he can touch my friend. And so they go back and they, they start talking to their friend to invite him to this place, you know, to carry him to this place. I'm not sure exactly how this paralyzed man would have felt about that. Chances are he had a few, you know, objections. Like he's tried this before. Like he's gone to the shamans, he's gone to the healers, he's gone to these people and nothing ever really works. And so he didn't want to get his hope up again and only to be disappointed again. I'm sure he was uncomfortable with the idea. He likely avoided public places because... Well, you know, in their religious system, he was really, there was something wrong with him. They preached this, they taught this. There was something wrong with him or with his parents. And the feeling that they would walk away with when, when they would hear the religious leaders te teaching, the feeling they walked away with, if they were paralyzed, if there were, if there were some issue with them, if they were unclean in some way, somehow or another, God hated them. God, at least God did not like them. And so this man is thinking, why do I want to go to a place where I'm going to be judged? Why do I want to go sit in a room where people are going to look at me and say, yeah, what's wrong with him? And so I'm sure he didn't really want to go. But his four friends are like, well, <laughs> too bad, you're coming. <laughs> so they carry him in this mat, you know, and they get to the house. And when they get to the house, there's no way to get in. I mean, it's so crowded. 
You know, the religious leaders have filled the front of the house and the back of the house is so full. Now there's people outside of the house. They've all heard that this Jesus heals a leper. And now there's a whole bunch of other sick people wanting to be, and it's just a crowded, crowded place. And so these friends are like, we don't know what to do. So one of them says, hey, let's go up to the roof. <laughs> and the other friends say, well, what are you going to do on the roof? Well, we're going to dig a hole through the roof and drop our friend through the roof. And it's at this point in the story where I actually see myself in the story. Like, it's a pretty redneck move, actually. Okay? And I have three redneck brothers-in-law that I could just see us doing that. I don't, I'm not trying to be offensive about using the word redneck because some of you are rednecks here. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but because... But because uh, my brothers-in-law, they're actually very, they're very accomplished. I, I, I have some pictures. This pi first picture may not look like it, uh, really. This is, a, this is my wife's family circa 1977. She's, I've gotten permission, by the way. She's sitting here watching, and she's smiling at me and also judging me at the same time. <laughs> this is Christy right here. She's the oldest of the six kids. And, uh, and you know... The, my brothers-in-law, this is my, the older Mickey, and then Ronnie, and then Danny, or my brothers-in-law. And, uh, and I just want you to notice, here, just one piece of attire here is my father-in-law with his white T-shirt tucked into his blue jean shorts and his white tube socks. <laughs> my entire life knowing him, that's how he would dress. In fact, they did, what, what was that, 80th birthday party? They did an 80th birthday party where everybody showed up dressed like that for my father-in-law, because that's, that's how he was, you know? And so, uh, let's go to the next pic. This is 46 years later now, and uh, th this is them at, at, the, at their, uh, my father-in-law's funeral last year, uh, or the reception afterwards, and they're all smoking cigars. Chrissy doesn't usually smoke cigars, at least not very much, but, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just a cigar. They were celebrating. My father-in-law obviously had passed away. And just so you think, I know I'm kind of making fun. I'm not really making fun. I, I love my family, my, my in-laws, my brother-in-law. He's a, he, as you can see, he's a sergeant major. They don't just give this away to anybody, by the way, if you're familiar with ranks and that kind of stuff. He's a very accomplished person, but nonetheless, a redneck. <laughs> so, um, and so anyway, I can just see ourselves in this story. And I see myself in this story, not so much, or, and them, not so much as a skeptic. Not so much like the religious leaders who are saying with a skeptical eye, looking at what's going on and say, what's going on here? But rather, I see myself as one of these four, these four friends who are going to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. Like they weren't very, you know, educated. They didn't have a spiritual pedigree. They didn't, you know, follow all the rules of etiquette. But they were going to do whatever it took for their friend to meet Jesus. Whatever it took. So I could just hear my brother-in-law, Danny. Hey, guys. Hey, bruh, no, more like, hey, bruh, uh, I have an idea. And Mickey and Ronnie are like, okay, I'm a little anxious because when Danny comes up with ideas, we're not sure if they always work out, right? But Danny doesn't take no for an answer, and he says, you know what, we're going to go up to the roof, and we're going to dig a hole in that roof, and we're going to drop our friend through that roof. Tells us in verse 19, when they could not find a way. When you cannot find a way, what do you do? 
when you cannot find a way to Jesus or find a way for your friend to meet Jesus, what do you do? And that's a question I want us to wrestle with as a church. What do you do when you cannot find a way? When you've been given a sacred assignment and, there's, and there just doesn't seem to be a way to, when you feel this calling to, to a, a person or a community or something in general, you feel this calling, but there's just way too many obstacles. I and mean, What do you do? Well, I guess you could quit and just go home, right? They could have showed up at the house and said, ah, too crowded, sorry, can't do it, and left. They could have done that. But then they would have been every day walking by their friend, lying on the mat, saying, man, could we have tried harder? Maybe we could have tried harder. They could say, well, you know what? Not, today's not the day. Too many people, today's not the day. We're just going to... We're going to find another convenient day. But again, their friend has been paralyzed for a very, very long time. And to say today's not the day is a bit insensitive and uncaring for their friend. I mean, like, this was the time. But here's the deal. It seems like not, like not a very good plan to climb up on the roof and dig a hole through the roof. Like, if I was here right now and somebody started digging a hole through that roof, I'd be like, what are you doing? Right? It doesn't seem like a very good, it's too impractical, it's distracting to others in the house. It's kind of embarrassing, you know, to be known as the people who went to church and dug a hole in the roof. <laughs> It'd be expensive. And then what if it doesn't work? What if, uh, what if, you know, Jesus gets mad at them for interrupting his sermon? I mean, Really, why would Jesus even care about one when he's got this whole crowd that is listening to him? So what do you do when you can't find a way? Well, here's what I suggest is you don't quit. Very simple answer. Don't quit. Don't quit. And here's, I, I know, I know, because there's some of you in this room right now, you're like, I, well, I, I can't. It's just too hard. Mountain's too big. Obstacles are too strong. I, I, I can't. I have to quit. Don't quit. This is what I want us as a church to be known for, that we will do whatever it takes to get a person to Jesus. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, including tearing up the roof. Don't tear up this roof, by the way. But <laughs> Tear the roof means that we're going to have a bias towards action, that we understand that there's a sense of urgency that we cannot wait because Jesus is coming back and the time is short and we must, we must do something. So we're going to act. Tearing the roof means that we're going to value risky innovation. That we're not just going to do things the way we've always done them, but we're going to be innovative. We're going to figure out how do, we, how do we get people, not just to come to this building. I mean, that's part of it, but how, how do we get people to be attracted to Jesus in a culture that's got so much noise out there that drowns the message of Jesus out? We're going to be innovative. Tearing a roof means that we're going to go to places that are difficult to get to. Maybe it's your own neighborhood. Maybe it's actually your neighbor, the one that you don't like very much, and he doesn't like you either. And maybe, maybe tearing the roof for you means I'm going to start a relationship with my neighbor so that he can meet Jesus. We're going to tear the roof because we know that that's what it will take to fulfill the assignment that God has given us to do. That's who I want to be. 
That's what I want this church to be. But here's the honest truth. Too often, I identify more with the crowd in the house than with the friends on the roof. Too often, I identify more with those people that are sitting down listening to Jesus than the ones trying to bring people to Jesus. I mean, think about this crowd. Imagine this crowd, right? They're sitting, you have the, especially the religious leaders at the very front, then you have others that are in there and they're sitting and they're watching Jesus. Their, their face are towards, they're, maybe they're even, they've got their notepads out. They're taking notes. Yeah, Jesus' sermon is awesome. What a powerful word from God. They're just taking these notes, you know. But what's behind them? What's behind them are the people that are on the outside. And if, if I have any kind of understanding of this culture in general, the people who needed Jesus the most were the ones even further on the periphery, further away. So are we the crowd? We're the crowd when we prioritize our experience inside the house over the experience of those outside the house. When what's most important about my faith is that I get my seat and I get to, you know, take in what this, what this preacher's going to preach. We're the crowd when we're more concerned about the mess being made than messing lies being cleaned up. We're the crowd when we get upset about stuff being broken more than excited about broken people being mended. It's when a church <clears throat> exists for itself and it turns us back on those on the outside of the house. Tearing the roof means that we're going to go to great lengths, to great lengths, so that those outside of the house can come inside of the house. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I kicked it off. I said, we, we have a goal, a vision, a desire to see 500 new, fully uh, committed and engaged followers of Jesus Christ who will cross three different finish lines, who will be saved, who will be baptized in water, who will start serving over the next couple of years. That comes from this idea that we, we have this, this, this sense that we have to focus on those outside of the house and bring them in. Now, I'm just using language in and out language. What I mean, I don't mean this building necessarily. I'm talking about bringing into community. So those who are lost and disconnected from Jesus actually find life and hope and joy that can be found through, through Jesus Christ. I imagine when this roof was being broken through, you know, all of the uh, hesitation, all of the argument against it, right? Like as they're breaking through the roof, there's people sitting on the front row saying, wait a minute, we were here first. Like we were here first, why are you cutting in line? As if being first really gives you more access to Jesus or not. <laughs> and the dust starts flying everywhere. Some people sitting in the house say, man, this house is getting messy, this house is dirty. I don't know. I'm not cleaning it up. I, I'm not going to clean it. Somebody else needs to clean this house up. In fact, I'm going to go look for another house that's cleaner. Some people sitting in the audience see the roof being torn into, and they're like, man, that's expensive. I don't know we should do that. It's not a good idea to be breaking through the roof like that. <clears throat> Some in the house, roll their eyes and say, oh man, those Gen Zers drive me nuts. 
So as a church, we want to be bold and courageous. We want to be unconventional and innovative. We want to have a bias towards action. And I imagine this. I think about this story, and I imagine us as a church. I imagine the thousand-plus people that say this is their home church, basically leveraging all of their resources, all of their energy, all of their talents and their gifts so that one person could get to know Jesus. So we need to ask ourselves, am I one of the friends on the roof or am I in the crowd? And if I'm in the crowd, okay, fine, fine. You might find yourself in the crowd, fine. But are you going to make room or are you going to be offended? I heard a story um, a few years back of a guy named Adam. Adam, um, Adam was, in, got in, was in prison for some serious crimes and spent quite a, quite a bit of time in prison. When he went to prison, he was young, he was young when he went to prison. He really didn't, was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. So while he was in prison, he met another inmate that was a Christian. And this inmate began to basically teach him how to read and write. And the way he taught him how to read and write was using the Bible. So Adam would, every day they'd get together and they would read the Bible for hours together. And Adam would learn English words by reading the Bible, you know. And so Adam became literate. He, I mean, I, I don't know how literate he became, but he became literate enough to be able to read. And uh, one day, when eventually he got released from prison <clears throat> and went back to his hometown. And as a Christian, he got baptized in prison. Now he's a follower of Christ. And as a Christian, he wanted to go join a church. So he went and found a small church near, his, near where he was living in his hometown. His family kind of rejected him, so he was living on his own. And uh, he's in this church, and as soon as he goes in this church, it's obvious, you know, you kind of sometimes, you know, this guy, this guy just got out or something, you know, and some people felt that way about him, and they started, some people started, you know, kind of complaining to the pastor about it, like, what, why, why is he here? And they started pressuring the pastor that the pastor needed to, to tell Adam that he needed to leave. And the pastor said, well, look, this, this place is open. The doors are for everybody. You know, we don't have signs on the doors that say only non-ex-convicts are allowed here, <laughs> right? And so they said to him, said, well, either he leaves or we leave. And so the church started, people started leaving the church. Adam began to feel really bad about this. And so um, he started thinking to himself, maybe I should leave. You know, I don't want to be the source of the problem here. I don't want to be the person who's making this issue. I, you know, I, maybe I should leave, you know, leave the church, Things started getting to an, a head, and um, there was a lot of disunity and angst in the church going on. And so one Sunday night, the pastor gets up, and after he preaches, after the service is over, the pastor gets up and says, hey, by the way, guys, everybody stay put. I got an announcement to make, a very important announcement to make. He said, and he said to Adam, who was sitting in the back, Adam, could you please come to the front? So Adam very sheepishly made his way to the front. He's thinking that maybe this is the day. This is the day that they're going to ask him to leave. This is a day that he's going to be told, you cannot be here, you know, we're sorry. I'm sure the pastor would have been very apologetic about it, but basically said, you, you need to leave. So Adam comes to the front, he's embarrassed, he feels ashamed, he looks at his own life, he wishes he could go back 30 years of his life and just turn it around and do something completely different, but he can't. He's really living with this tag. And so he, uh, he comes to the front, sits on the front, and the pastor says, I've got this announcement to make, and... As many of you know, Adam here. And so the people in the audience are, are listening and there's a people who have complained to him about Adam and they're thinking, well, it's about time that he does this. Some are thinking, well, it's about time he does this, but you know, kind of wish he would have done it privately and not publicly like this, but you know, this is the right thing to do. 
And so the pastor gets up and he says, this announcement I'm going to make, he says, listen, many of you know Adam here, he's, he's you know, recently out of prison, he's been having a hard time finding a job, and well, I've decided that I'm going to hire him as our custodian. And, um, and then the pastor, the pastor reaches into his pockets and hands Adam the keys. And Adam said, Adam's telling this story, by the way, I heard Adam say the story. Adam says, <clears throat> through tears, he said, I've never been given keys in my entire life. I've never had my own key for anything in my entire life. That was around 25 years ago. Adam has been the pastor of that church for the last 11 years. <laughs> and it's just amazing what God is doing. You see, yeah, well, amen. <laughs> I wish Adam was here. <laughs> Um, uh, you see, Adam had a friend that stood up for him. This time I'm going to do whatever it takes so he would be with Jesus. <clears throat> the story ends in Luke 5. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, okay, so just let's get this image, okay, this is what's happening. They're in this room. It's messy because tile had fallen through the, through the roof. They're lowering this friend down and he laying right there in front of Jesus and Jesus sees that and this is what he says. When he saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. And up, up there, Danny is like, what did he say? No, no, no. He's paralyzed. He's paralyzed. That's what needs to happen. Not, not his sin. His, his legs don't work. <laughs> I can just see that. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking to ask. Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? <clears throat> your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But... I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to this paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Man, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have witnessed that perfect, per, 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 uh, personally. I love what Jesus says to this man. He says, go home. He says, go home. Take your mat and go home. And I think the reason why is Jesus knew exactly everything about this man. He knew how this family felt beaten down because of this man's condition. They, that, that, that somehow or another, he had done something wrong or his parents had done something wrong. He just knew that, there was some, that, that, that they felt like there was something wrong with, him, with them, inherently wrong with them. But Jesus knew what was going to happen when he walked through the door. Not, not carried through the door. When he walked through the door, when he would walk through his home door, walk through the door, and he'd say to his mom and dad, Mom, Dad, by the way, I got an announcement. God's not mad at us. You didn't do anything wrong. This was all for his glory and for his sake. My friends took me to Jesus, and I met the one who's not only healed me of my, you know, being paralyzed, but he set my soul free. 
I read this story and I sometimes wonder, man, I wish I was there. In fact, this week, I remember on third, uh, Wednesday morning, Wednesday morning early, I was at Dunn Brothers Coffee and, and I was like finalizing these last pieces on the message. And as I was writing, man, I wish I was there. And I wrote, don't you wish you were there? In my notes, don't you wish you were there? And the Holy Spirit checked me. And the Holy Spirit said, Rich, this is that house. This is that house. This is the house where people are being set free. This is the house where those who are, who are sick are being healed. In fact, this past Friday, we had a testimony of a, somebody in our, in our congregation who said after 14 years of prayer, last October, her husband finally gave, her, gave his life to Jesus Christ and surrendered his heart to Jesus Christ. He had been a skeptic for many years, but he finally surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. This is that house. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask us all to stand. <clears throat> Now, there's these characters that we talk about in this story. There's the, uh, the crowd, the people in the crowd, you know, the religious leaders, the teachers, the, one who, the ones who um, are in it for themselves in many ways. There's the four friends in this story as well, the ones who took their friends to Jesus. But there's one more character, the paralyzed man. And I suspect that in this room, there's a few of you that identify with him. You're not paralyzed necessarily physically, but spiritually you are. Spiritually, you're walking around with this guilt and this load that tells you every single day, man, I've made so many mistakes in my life. God doesn't like me. God hates me. Or maybe you don't go that far. Maybe you don't say that God hates you, but maybe what you say to yourself is, I can't go around all those people that are Christians because they will figure me out and they'll know that I'm not really, you know, that good. If you read this story, you see that Jesus recognized, like I have this image, I can't help it, guys, when I read this, when I read the Gospels, especially when I read the Gospels, I try my very best to, to see it almost as a movie running through my brain. And I have this image of this man being lowered down in front of Jesus and Jesus looks at him and Jesus makes eye contact with him. And almost instantly, instantly, this man knows that there's this unconditional love towards him. Instantly, he knows that there is hope and there is peace and there's joy. And he's lived all of his life without that. But instantly, he meets Jesus. And I just want you, if you're here this morning and you've never met that Jesus, to meet him. He loves you. He gave his life for you. He just wants you to surrender your life to him. Amen. I want to pray for us. And as I'm praying, if you're here this morning and you've never really confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, will you do that in your own words? If you're watching in Cedar Rapids or in Wilton, you do the same thing. If you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I just want to challenge you here this morning. 
with your own words to say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that means. I don't know where, where that's gonna take me, but Jesus, today, I surrender my life to you. Will you take it and use it for your glory and your kingdom? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just wanna thank you that you're here, you're present, that you're speaking. And that, God, you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And even right now, my friends in this room that maybe have never surrendered their life to you, Jesus, I pray that, you will, that you'll convict them of their sin, that you'll call them out, that you'll invite them into a relationship with you. May they experience your love, your grace, and your mercy, and your compassion this morning. I thank you, Jesus, for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.